While still in his 40s, Paul Ryan scaled the heights of American politics and government. As the former Speaker of the United States House of Representatives and the Republican nominee for Vice President in 2012, he's been in the room where it happens and has been responsible for actually making it happen. Our conversation on today's episode of Hardly Working started with how Ryan reconciles his commitment to the free market with his Catholic faith, his calling as a frustrated economist, and a detour into Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. We then move on to discuss Ryan's bipartisan effort to advance evidence-based policymaking, the failure of the Great Society's war on poverty, present-day populism, and the future of conservatism. Paul Ryan, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Brent, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. This is going to be a lot of fun to get to know each other a little bit more, as well as, I think, some really interesting policy conversation that we want to have as well. So on this podcast, which is principally devoted to like career and work and things like that, we always ask people, like, how did you get to where you are, which is kind of a question that's a little bit awkward for somebody who's been Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. But given that everybody already knows that, I think it would be interesting for people to hear who have been the big influences in your life and career, the big influences on the way that you think, people who encouraged you, people who inspired you to public service. So why don't you just talk to us a little bit about your background there? Yeah. I mean, frankly, the early part of my life coming out of school, I, I wanted to be an economist. And I thought my dream job was going to be to be the chief economist at R.W. Baird in Milwaukee, you know, doing like currency speculation and, you know, and things like that. You know, that was back when, you know, the pound sterling and all of that stuff, you know, went crazy. So well, you still uh, got to be in charge of the currency. So yeah, right. It's kind of the same thing. right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't quite go exactly where I was thinking I was going to go, but I was always interested in policy and politics. But economics was really my thing. You know, my dad died when I was 16 years old. And so I went through life with lots of mentors and a couple of his good buddies were my mentors that kind of, you know, were surrogate dads to me. Those guys just, you know, were mentors in life, you know, hunting and, and go fishing and things like that. But I always looked for mentors because it just, it just felt comfortable to me. I guess I'd say the person that most inspired me in public service that got me to basically think of public service, you know, running for Congress as a vocation, not as a temporary thing as a young guy was Jack Kemp. I left college and took a job on Capitol Hill as a staff economic policy researcher for Bob Kasten, a, a guy from Wisconsin, a senator in the time. And I always thought, I'll do this for two years as an interim between going back to school. I want to go to Chicago. To your earlier part of the question, the thinkers that, that influenced me in those days were the Chicago school, you know, Milton Friedman, Bob Mundell, and the, the Austrians. I studied the Austrians in school, Mises, Hayek. So I come from the supply side, free market world of view. And also I was a searching, you know, young guy and I cradled Catholic and I went through the whole search of all that stuff and read Aquinas and Augustine and all of that stuff mm -hmm. and came back more fully committed to the Catholic church through that sort of discovery process as a young person. And so those are sort of the thinkers that influenced me, but it really was Jack who taught me that the, the infectious enthusiasm of good ideas, the vocation and the nobility of serving in public life and proselytizing great ideas and principles and putting them into law and making a difference and seeing them change people's lives. I always thought I was going to go in like sort of a microeconomics field, 
maybe as I got into working in Congress, I thought maybe I'll go work at a think tank, make that my thing. And then I just ended up getting inspired by Jack and encouraged by some others to go ahead and try and run for I was 27 years old. I went home to Janesville, Wisconsin, looked at the race, ended up running. I had nothing to lose. I was 27. I was single. <laughs> so I said, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur in public policy. And I either run a think tank, which had to be like Ed Fulmer or something like that, or, you know, run for Congress. So I literally just gave it a shot. I was hoping to get the nomination. It was a nine-way primary to begin with. I got the nomination fairly, fairly handily. And it was a Democrat district. It was Les Aspen's seat for 22 years. So no one thought I had a shot. They ended up winning it pretty, pretty solidly in a tough year in 98. And I ran a very, you know, specific type of campaign, an economics-based campaign. And I just outworked my opponent, frankly, is how kind of what I think happened. And then when I got to Congress, I chose mentors. I looked around at people who I thought were policy leaders. And I basically picked my path, which isn't how I ended up, which is either you go the leadership path, you go just the political prognosticator, you know, dead fly on TV. Or you go be a policy person. I thought I was going to be a policy person outside of Congress. I decided to be a policy person. And you scale the committee structure. So I first went for budget committee, became the ranking member, then chair of budget committee, then ways and means, and then very roundabout, very untraditional, became speaker of the house when I was chairman of the ways and means committee, because I was sort of drafted over to the position. Not since I think Sam Rayburn has anybody gone that type of route. Most people just start at Deputy whip, chief deputy whip, whip, right. majority leader, you know, count, conference chair, then become speaker. I never wanted to go down the leadership path, never wanted to be in leadership. But, you know, I got to a point where I sort of had to do it because our our party was going to implode because no one had the votes to do the job. And I had just run with Mitt on the ticket in 12. So I was sort of the guy with a name and that everybody thought, you know, they could stomach. <laughs> so, you know, the Freedom Caucus. Uh, well, I don't. I, yeah, I don't think of you. Consensus guy. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't think of you as the lowest common denominator. Yeah, but that is, I guess, one one way to think about it. So, I have a question about your faith and your economic philosophy. Did that ever present a challenge for you in terms of sort of combining the communitarian aspects yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. faith with the free market impulse of? Milton Friedman's thought and Hunter Hayek. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I got I got so many people threw stuff at me all the time, criticisms from all over. You can't be a good Catholic and believe this, blah, 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 blah. At the root. And by the way, I don't believe in this sort of remarketing common good capitalism. That's a bunch of bunk in my opinion, too. At the core, the whole notion of subsidiarity is a free market concept. It is an individualistic concept. But I do believe we are moral people where whether the epistemology of Augustine or Aquinas or whatever you want to choose, there are obligations to one another and markets have to have rules so that these obligations are met. And by the way, that's the best thing for markets. So Mm. at the core of it, capitalism is a moral basis of organizing society and economies. It is far more moral than the other ones, the the forms of collectivism. Mm. But for capitalism to work properly, there has to be consensus, common ground. There has to be some communitarian aspects to it. Then the question is, is there a role for the state for helping people? Is there a role for the state for common denominator policies? And the answer is absolutely yes, there is. And I think we've reached a lot of consensus in our, in our republic for what those things ought to be. And they are, they are helpful for our economy. Education, infrastructure, you name it. There are a lot of things the government has a proper role to play. 
The goal is to make sure that the government does it extremely well, and that allows markets to work. And free enterprise built upon the bedrock of the, the preconditions for economic growth, the accelerants for economic growth, is the right policy mix, which I think philosophically works perfectly well. So it's not, you know, like Ayn Rand objectivism and things like that, which is, you know, the extreme end. I do think that there are, I think markets and free markets work extremely well with the notion of solidarity and subsidiary and the preferential option for the poor. These are Catholic principles I'm discussing. So I think they're extremely compatible with one another. Mm -hmm. And it's up to um, the prudential judgment of an individual person to decide exactly what the mix looks like. But at the basis, because of subsidiary and other principles, markets, freedom, individuals. So in your in your studies of these texts, did you spend much time in the theory of moral sentiments? Sure. Yeah, yeah it's great. I mean, it's, it's better than, than, than it's better than wealth of nations. Yeah. Frankly, it's no, a better a- reason. absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, I think it provides kind of a nonsectarian take on these questions of mutuality, solidarity. Smith was really you know, we always think of him as being the invisible hand and, you know, the no. guy, the free market guy, but he was really yeah. preeminently a moral philosopher. And Absolutely. I've always wanted to, like, get a bunch of neuroscientists together and have them sort of read Adam Smith on the impartial spectator and the, you know, the, the natural sympathies that build human societies. Because I think he was he was a neuroscientist before neuroscience. I mean, he really yeah. understands human development. and. How dependent upon one another. Yeah, when I was young, um, I read yeah. a lot of the Enlightenment leader. You know, I read all the yeah. Voltaire versus Rousseau and everything. I, and I just really came down on the side of these things. And I think theory of moral sentiments is probably the best piece that encapsulates the thinking of the time and the best the best thinking of the time. It's a good advertisement for theory of moral sentiments. Anybody who's interested in learning more about it, we've got a curriculum, the AEI website. I highly recommend people delve into that. If you'd like to learn more, both about wealth of nations and theory of moral sentiments. So, okay, so let's move on. You talk a lot about geography of opportunity and communities that lack social capital. And you've talked about policymakers having focused too much on input. This is all about if we just put enough money on this problem, we're going to take care of it. When it really should be about creating opportunities. Can you talk a little bit more about? what this perspective means for you and how you've seen it work out in policy terms. Yeah, I think, for lack of a better phrase, the war on poverty got gripped by bad ideology. And that bad ideology decided to measure success by throwing money at problems, inputs, money, and creating programs. And in many ways, they created this notion that we'll just, just that this is government's role. That if we're going to fight poverty, get people out of poverty, don't worry, pay your taxes. Government's got this figured out and we'll create programs to do this as if that is a perfectly decent substitute for communities, for mediating institutions, for people helping fix problems eye to eye, soul to soul, person to person, community by community. They decided big is better. Federal is, is, is more efficient and we can just design programs and, and therefore materialistically we can solve this problem. It blew up in our faces. It created a lot of dependency, and it backfired in many, many instances. Have we materially taken people out of poverty from a technical perspective? Sure, yeah. If you throw enough money, you can do that. But have we really created a society enriched with upward mobility and people living the best versions of their lives and becoming the best versions of themselves? Did these policies do that? No, they did not. 
So I think what is missing is the sense of community, the sense of solidarity, the sense of the mediating institutions that, that civil society provides. And we've displaced people participating in helping the lives of one another. And we've also redefined what success is. We've redefined what opportunity is. And so where you see strong, Raj Chetty probably did the best study of them all, but there's a lot of them out there. Where you see communities where you have greatest upper mobility, best social cohesion, vibrant civil society, Salt Lake City, for example, you have communities that did not follow this advice. You had communities that have strong civil society, strong community, um, helping one another, and economic growth. You can't just substitute private sector economic growth, wage growth, competition for labor, innovation, opportunity, and social capital that comes with all of that in those communities. These things are interlinked. And I think we just went down this path in the war on poverty by just you know getting rid of the secret sauce that makes all this stuff work and substituting all of it for more programs, more money, more dependency, and predictable results. It's interesting when I talk to my friends who are on the left about this and make the social capital argument, the argument is always, well, you still have to have a job. You can talk about social capital all day long, but if you don't have employment, if you don't have sources of work and income that can sustain a family, then social capital stuff, it's not that it doesn't make a difference. It does make a difference. But for those folks, the, the chicken really here is the economy and the social capital is just, you know, kind of a nice after effect. An accoutrement. Yeah. 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 And of course, you know, these things are symbiotic. They work together. You know, you nothing succeeds like success. And so when you've got tough economic times, it is hard on social capital. I think that that's been pretty well demonstrated too. But social capital, in my mind anyway, is kind of like, are people prepared to take advantage of opportunity? For me, that's what it kind of boils down to, at least in the American context. You know, like, are people, do they have the education they need? Do they have the trust that's required to enter a free society and a free market? And that really seems to me to be like the underlying thing, which I can't quite get around this idea that you can't have a strong economy on top of a social capital, a weak social capital base. So what do we do about the weak social capital base? I think we're in real trouble right now because of digitization. I think we are living more artificial lives on our devices, on our electronic devices, and it is actually bringing atrophy to these mediating institutions, our churches, our civic organizations, the place and the space where we live our lives between our government and ourselves. Not artificially, not with you know this thing, but with ourselves. And there's also capital. Okay, you, you obviously have to have capital with that. You have to have investment. You have to have organizations. You have to have civil society. All these things that help people realize their humanity and work with one another to do that. So you know, I was just talking to a buddy in Janesville. I live in Janesville, Wisconsin. Who is a big he's a big Rotary guy. Founded all the Rotary fundraisers in Janesville. They had this big mud volleyball thing. And he says, you know, nobody comes to our Rotary clubs anymore. We used to have morning Rotary, noon Rotary, and then there was a dinner Rotary at one time. And now everybody's collapsed in just the noon Rotary, and it's like 15 people. When I was just a politician going to these things in the late 90s, there's 200 people at breakfast and then another 200 people at lunch at the Rotary club. 
And then the other day, I'd go to the Kiwanis Club, and then I'd go to the Lions Club. All of these were social organizations totally focused on community, totally focused on helping each other in the community do something, promoting young people, helping older people, helping people find jobs, doing something in the community. Nobody does this anymore. This is just, I'm just giving you a little vignette on just Janesville. But this is happening across. Now, everybody's written books on this. Bob Putnam's written books on this. Charles Murray's written Everybody's written books on this stuff. You know, the Bowling Alone stuff. But that is what is happening in society. And it's bringing us farther apart, even though we're more electronically connected. So I think that's a huge problem. At the core of it, I guess I would say moral relativism has seeped in so much more in society, facilitated by digitization, the monetization of it. And what do you do to get it back? I taught this class at Notre Dame last semester about this, digital polarization and political polarization. The best thing I can come up with is we have to revitalize those institutions of civil society, those non-government type of organizations. And we're becoming less religious as well. So these non-government organizations that connect us and give us a sense of value and pride in helping other people that give us this common good sense in community. If you're raising kids, I've got still got two in high school, you're really involved in that stuff. But once you're done with that, everybody leaves. And that's what's sort of happening in society today. So, you know, I wish I could say there's a government program or a bill or a law you can pass mm-hmm. that fixes this. There really isn't. Other than, you know, have a good, healthy, growing economy so people have discretionary income to do this. So they have more hours at home, you know, working on non-work parts of the community. So I think those are important preconditions. But at the end of the day, you got to take on relativism. You got to reassert the idea that there are moral truths in life and that government's job isn't to take care of all of this. It's it's our job as people in our communities. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something going on that you know people are just in some ways fundamentally unprepared anymore to relate to other people. And this, this kind of goes to a conversation we were having about an hour ago on your web event with American Ideas Foundation, but we both talk about, and we're both big admirers of a program called the Nurse Family Partnership. And when people hear the word nurse, they think, oh, yeah. this is health. You know, it's like healthcare. We're like, and of course it isn't. I'm sure that they do it into physical health needs, but that's not the main focus. So why don't you talk a little bit about your observations about the Nurse Family Partnership? Yeah. You, you've visited a couple of their sites. Many of them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good example. And this is an area government can play a role and charity can play a role. So I'm glad you mentioned it. So I've I've been to the Nurse Family Partnership in Kenosha and Racine. I was just down in rural South Carolina last month doing it or two months ago. So you have a nurse that goes and finds an expected mother, a single mom who's almost always a first-time mother, who is in poverty, who doesn't know what she's doing. You know, she doesn't know. It was probably an unplanned pregnancy. It's a single mom, doesn't know just the basics of prenatal care for her baby, and then how to care for the baby afterwards. And they don't have anybody in their lives who teach them that, to show them that, to help them figure that out. So the nurse family partnership is that. A nurse partners with an expectant mom, and they become close. They become friends. And the nurse effectively acts like a mother or a, or a mentor, really that's a better word, mentor, to the expectant mother to help her figure out Here's what you have to do to have a healthy pregnancy. These are the vitamins. This is the diet. These are the things you don't do. These are the things you do do. Here's how you get prepared. No one else would tell them this. And then after they've had the baby, 
they help them. I think it's up to three years, I think. I can't remember exactly. I think it's up to three years old. Then they help them with all those things in infancy. And it has huge developments to huge. And we've been doing RCTs. We've been running evidence and analytics on this program for years. I first got involved with it in the Bush administration and George W. Bush administration grew the program. Obama was enamored with it and they expended it. And then Trump saw the wisdom of it and he reauthorized it. So Bush, Obama, Trump, you could have three different presidents. It's a program that had just really good evidence that proved this is teaching women who are having babies out of wedlock how to be good moms and how to raise those kids at the really critical stage of development from birth to three years old, pre-birth to three years old. And it's it's extremely successful. And those nurses and those moms become extremely close. And they help these moms really ratchet themselves up the ladder of life, up the escalator of upper mobility, and to get them on a really good path and putting the life. So that the mom then is better off. And if she's going to be better off, we all know it's, it's really clear, the child is going to be better off. So there is an example. It's a government program of civil society working to actually trajectory change society for the better. And there are lots of instances like that. That's why I think philanthropy and civil society and yes, government's role, not in micromanaging, but providing resources, the supply lines, not the front lines, but the supply lines and the war on poverty, using best practices and what works to me is sort of the best answer that we have of reinvigorating social capital. How do you get people to go to the Rotary Club in Janesville, Wisconsin anymore? Get a few leaders to really push and prod people to go to it. Some we call them bell cows in Wisconsin. Just get some bell cows to lead it. But what about the poor mom who's never had a baby before, who doesn't know how to raise a baby? There's a good program for that. That actually works. Mm -hmm. And if we can prove that it works, then let's fund it. And let's take the money from the programs that have been proven not to work and use that. So we aren't actually net increasing spending. I mean, I think what's interesting about NFP is that its principal focus is really on, obviously, on the prenatal side, making sure you have a healthy birth, which is incredibly important. But then in the in the postpartum, like teaching a mom some of the basics of how you interact with a baby, talk to the baby, read to the baby, you know, never stop interacting because all that interaction is what's building sort of this healthy personality that will then be ready to start pre-K or to start Head Start or start, you know, kindergarten, first grade. And that's where some of these really interesting outcomes come from is really in the sheen of, you know, kind of human personality as much as anything that you're doing to make sure that say the diet is right for the child or or something like that. So it's a fascinating program. And I think that that's when we use a term like social capital, it's like, well, you know, what is that? Well, to me, that's what it is. You know, that is building social capital inside people. Yeah. And so there are a number of uh, nurse family partnership is gold standard. There are a number of other programs out there that I've encountered in my career where it's like I can point to it and say, yeah, that really works. And a lot of these are philanthropically driven, at least at the beginning. And then they, you know, government finally recognizes it and starts to get behind it. So let's talk about American Ideas. What is it? It's a perfect segue. So American Idea Foundation is a foundation I created after I retired as Speaker of the House to focus on some things I really care about, which is poverty and strategies to affect this, to improve our fight against poverty, to go after poverty at root causes, to break the cycle of poverty. And and to really focus on, there's different kinds of poverty, but 
focus on intergenerational poverty. Just to segue what we are talking about, the last law I wrote in Congress was this thing called the Evidence Act. It's a bill I did with Patty Murray. We founded this commission. Actually, I got the idea from Jim Sullivan at Notre Dame, an economist there at the Laboratory for Economic Opportunity, and Raj Chetia, an economist at Harvard. And I was talking to these guys, first Raj, about this, this study on upper mobility and geographic indicators of it, which is a really interesting study. And I asked him to fly down to DC and walk me through it. And, you know, that's the great thing in Congress. You can have all these interesting people, you know, walk you through what they do. Long story short, he got unprecedented access to data that I thought was extremely helpful for policymakers. Talked to Sullivan in Notre Dame about this. He's like, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if we all could get this data and we could all, you know, as academics do something about this. You ought to do a commission to, to figure out how to do all of this and get all this data out there so the public can actually measure government, measure effectiveness, and we can actually stop having these debates about more money or less money, more programs or less programs, but on what is actually effective. And a light bulb went off in my head. I said, I'm going to do that. That's a great idea. <laughs> so I called Patty Murray, who was you know, my counterpart at Budget for many years, go real well. We don't agree on much, but we're friends. We get along real well personally. Patty, I want to do this commission. Here's what it is. She's like, that's fine. I'm cool. I'll do it. We did it. We put Ron Haskins, a Brookings guy, in charge of it because I wanted to make sure this was not seen as some Republican thing, just a good thing. The commission gave us its results. We took its results as much as we could, put it in a bill, and I got it through Congress literally like on my last day as Speaker of the House. And that commission releases, I'm going to give you the quick, quick, quick story, releases the government data on programs, all programs, but namely poverty programs, in a privacy compliant way so that academics, researchers can look at the data and see what works and what doesn't, and then get the government to actually measure the results of programs, not the inputs of programs, the effectiveness of programs, whether something works or not, and then get the muscle memory built into the minds of not just government bureaucracies, but of policymakers and of philanthropy to focus on evidence-based policymaking so that we can bypass the ideological loggerheads of how do you fix poverty. Collectivists say this, free market people say that, we basically go to a stalemate and nothing gets done. The status quo just gets funded more. So my foundation is primarily focused on making sure that this law gets well executed. I also focus on improving the measurement of opportunity zones. So my foundation is basically focused on what I would call center-right ideas for fighting poverty and restoring civil society and reproducing upper mobility that we aspire to as Americans. It's called the American Idea Foundation. And I say the American Idea is effectively, not I, but this is what we think of, is the condition of your birth doesn't determine the, the outcome of your life. The only country founded on natural rights. It's a beautiful thing. The only one founded on an idea. And the job of Americans is to perfect on it every generation. So my foundation is, is trying to do that in just these discrete areas by making sure that we're well executing evidence as a policymaking barometer and tool in government and out of government. And then those, those things that reconnect the private sector, the public sector, and the philanthropy sector, get capital into poor communities, get private sector into poor communities like opportunity zones are well designed and well done. Because I think the problem, the left took over the idea of what it takes to fight poverty. And as well-intended, I'm not trying to just bash them, but well-intended, but really poorly executed. And it ended up displacing civil society it ended up marginalizing the poor. It ended up telling the common taxpayer-paying American, don't worry, this isn't your problem. Government's got it taken care of. Just pay your taxes and go on about your life. That's wrong. That's not true. And so what we're trying to do at the American Idea Foundation is sort of attack that premise with what we think are better ideas. 
It's been fascinating to watch this roll out. The commission made its recommendations, then the Office of Management and Budget is in the process of trying to herd all of these agencies toward creating basically repositories of evidence-based practices within those agencies. You see these websites kind of popping up in various agencies that are attempting yep. to do that. And we're getting ready to do try to do a cross-cut from all these various agencies just around the workforce question, because a lot of agencies are working on workforce that you know you don't think of as being workforce agencies. So from a policy wonk's perspective, it's a gold mine, you know, because somebody's doing a tremendous amount of work for us in terms of analyzing, basically evaluating the evaluations of yep. programs to say this one has some evidence, this one not so much. And that's going to be what you articulated about, you know, we need evidence-based policy is like 10 words and it takes 10 years to get there, right? I mean, I wasn't aware before we sat down that that Mm -hmm. is kind of the focus of the foundation because I think it does need that sort of outside tending to make sure that it continues to move. It reminds me a little bit of the Nunn-Luger, you know, anti nuclear proliferation. Mm-hmm. They they went off and set up an organization to keep yep. pushing the objectives of that work. So well done. Yeah, those guys are friends of mine. Or were, I mean, Richard Dick yeah. was a good friend of mine and, and I know Sam a little bit. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, I, I got so stuck in a bunch of policy fights on poverty. Like I remember when I was chair of Ways and Means, I tried doing this benefit offset for disability program. So for every $3 you earn in outside money, you lose $1 on your benefit. So you're always ahead. And you basically, disabled people can do other things than what they were doing. I got a buddy mm-hmm. who was an electrician, got paralyzed, so he wanted to do taxes, but he couldn't because he, if he made more than $1,051 a month, he'd lose his disability benefits. So he stopped yeah. working. Yeah. So on and on and on. And you think the world was ending. They, the disability community came and protested me at my church at mass. You know, my priest had to kick him out, go to my home, my offices. Mm. They do sit-ins. I mean, it's just the craziest thing. Because I was proposing a voluntary benefit offset formula, don't have to do it if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know you can. And I just realized, like, we are at such ideological yeah. loggerheads. If something so simple like this is so deemed deemed so controversial, all the Democrats wouldn't touch me with a ten foot ball. They wouldn't. I couldn't get it past my committee. I got. I could get out of committee, but nowhere past that. So I decided let's back up and let's just go back and let's make this. You know, that's why I picked. Patty Murray was a perfect partner. Let's just find out what works and what doesn't work. I'm confident enough in my, in my principles that I, I think they'll be validated and I think they'll work. And by the way, if they don't, then maybe I should rethink them. <laughs> and that's basically where I, I, I felt like the way to move the needle on public policy is this, especially in the area of the poor. We spend a trillion dollars a year on about 80 programs at just the federal level trying to fix this. And we're just, it's a total stalemate. It's a total status quo problem. So yeah. that's why. And, and I'm actually a fan of OMB. I spent a lot of time as a budget guy overseeing CBO. Bush offered me that job in like 06 or something like that. So I know the agency really well. And I'm actually a fan of OMB. It's a lot of professionals. And I think it's the right choke funnel point in government to as quickly as possible move this, this kind of reform through the system. Yeah, this is a Washington truism, right? The the yeah. more obscure the agency is, often the more powerful it is. And OMB That's is right. incredibly powerful. And then within OMB, there's this thing called the Office of Information 
and Regulatory Affairs. OIRA. OIRA. I know it well. I know it and, well. Yeah. I mean, you say that word out loud and all of Washington turns to <laughs> yeah. try to figure out what you're talking about because I spent know. years looking at OIRA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know yeah. it well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was one of my first legislative projects on the Senate side was reauthorization of OIRA. And I, I almost lost my mind. It, it's so complicated because yeah. it touches every aspect of American Everything. life. Yeah. yeah. OK, so we're we're running up close to the end of time. And I want to get to a couple other questions. I know you've been thinking about fundamental welfare reform. What do you see as the principal problems? I mean, we went through a huge reform in 96, very successful income up, poverty down, kids doing better. You know, it was a remarkable achievement. What do you see as the next stage of what needs to happen on welfare? Uh, number one, prevent the backsliding that has been occurring in this area to try and, you know, which has been atrophying at that I work first works, work works, and welfare reform with, with state experimentation was extremely successful. But that's TANF. You know, we've got all these yeah, other yeah. programs. Yeah. So what I learned, and you and I have had this conversation with digitization, you can do so much more breaking down government barriers on agencies and silos. So I've become sort of enamored with, with an idea that Ian Duncan Smith, a buddy of mine, he's a Tory over in England, came up with called the universal credit. They rolled it out a little early before they had the systems in place to do it. And it was kind of a government provided benefit. But the concept I think is extremely solid, which is to try and consolidate government benefits into a flexible package that is customizable for a person for what it is that they need or she or he or their families need, case managers, whether it's be from the philanthropy sector, the government sector, or for-profit sector, compete based on how good they are at producing results, manage this universal credit. And with digitization, you can really make a difference on this. So what I mean when I say digitalization, we're going to have digital money pretty soon in the world. I think you can get rid of lots of bureaucracy, and you can get rid of a lot of program integrity problems by conditionalizing money. This is for rent. This is for food. This is for transportation. This is for discretionary income. This is for that. And these are time limits. And these are work requirements. And with digitization, you can embed all of that into the money so that you can get rid of a ton of bureaucracy. You can put the exact right incentive structure in place. And then the benefit offsets, the benefit cliffs we talk about, which are basically marginal tax rates against upward mobility, which when someone's starting to make a difference, get ahead, they lose a benefit because they get a raise or they work a few more hours and they're set even farther back. You can customizably, with programming and algorithms, design a benefit so that a person always takes a good path in the right direction, has the right incentives, has the work requirements, has the time limits and all of that, along with someone that helps them navigate and assemble all of this stuff. I think that's the 21st century version of a safety net. And that's something that I'm really eager on working on because of all the problems that I, in my whole career, worked on, I spent 20 years on this stuff. It's a bunch of government bureaucracies with old technology, with a lot of waste of money, with a ton of fraud, and the bureaucracies stiltify innovation. And they do not follow best practices. They do not follow evidence. They are just status quo things that just get added more on top of it. Let me look at the unemployment thing we have. Look, we're paying people about 40% of American unemployed are making more money in unemployment than they are in work. I mean, so. This shouldn't be a problem. We should be able to fix this. And technology today allows us to do that. So I think you'll actually save a lot of money. You'll streamline government and you'll put the right individual customized incentive structure in place for a person to get themselves out of poverty. And then you'll have a true safety net that is really working for those who really cannot help themselves. 
And yeah. that to me is the model for the 21st century. I know yeah. I, I said it as fast as I can because I know you're. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's something I think we're all going to be thinking a lot about over the next year or two about what would this actually look like? What would it mean? So everybody stay tuned for that. And we'll have Paul back on to give us the, the status report, at least at the conceptual level. I mean, this is a lot of work you're talking about to kind of redesign a, a real Leviathan that we've got in our public welfare system. So last question, people will be very upset if I don't ask this question. You were the Republican Party's nominee for vice president, you Speaker of the House. You are one of our, although you look very young, you are one of our senior elder statesmen. (laughs) It feels like we're at some sort of a turning point in American conservatism. Where do you see things going? Yeah, we are. I feel like I'm in the minority of my party for sure by now. I'm a Reagan conservative. I'm a conservative of the classical liberal variant. And, you know, I believe in natural rights and natural law and free markets. And, you know, we have a strain of populism pumping through our party right now. I like populism if it's tethered to good core principles, if it's principled populism. If we're trying to make classical liberal conservative principles more popular, I'm on board. I'm all for it. I spent my career trying to do that. But if it's just about feeding the beast and hits and clicks and telling people what they want to hear when they want to hear it, if it's right-wing moral relativism and right-wing identity politics, count me out. And regrettably, I think that that's a lot of what's being practiced. There's a huge pecuniary incentive for non-political people to, to follow this, meaning there's a big way to monetize this stuff, monetize polarization, monetize outrage. And then I think our party, and so does the Democrat Party, both parties have given rise to what I call the entertainment wing of our parties. In the old days, like 10 years ago, if you wanted to make it in politics, you had to be good at it. You had to Like be good at it, meaning like policy and persuasion, getting things done, passing laws, writing reforms, innovative policies. That was the meritocracy I was taught to climb to make it in politics. Today, if you can entertain and provoke, you can make it faster than these guys slugging away in committees. Yeah, that's kind of dull work, isn't it? I mean, all yeah, dull work grinding away on bills. I can just get on Fox and get on uh, TV. Yeah, just 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 use the thumbs in a good way on Twitter. You can be famous, you can get rich, and you can raise a bunch of money. You don't have to even make a case for your idea. You just outrage. Yeah. Well, I won't say that's a good word to end on. Yeah. At the end of the day, we'll get it figured out. It's what Churchill said. The Americans can be counted upon to do the right thing, but only after they've exhausted all the other possible alternatives. That's right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. We will get there, and we will see a conservative principles are eternal principles. They don't go away just because we stop paying attention to them. So, Paul Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on Hardly Working. Look forward to having you on again soon and to hear more about the American Idea Foundation and all that great work you're doing. So, appreciate your time. You bet, Brent. Thanks much. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.